Hello, everyone, and welcome to Then Again, our podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center. This is a special nerding out edition because some of you may know that we are now an all-women-led history museum, which I think is really cool. Woohoo! Go ladies! Yeah, I'm sure there's another one. Yeah, I really don't know. So if, if anyone out there knows of another history museum or museum in general that is all women led, let us know. It seems like we it like just, to be yeah, we want to be <laughs> friends. And it just sort of happened. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't intend to, but we, uh, I'm very happy to have a all women led team. I think it's a very cool attribute of us. And uh, so today we kind of want to celebrate women in history. And we've, we've decided to choose some of our, our favorite ladies of history. And I know it will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me. Oh, yeah, that also reminds me. Maybe we should say who we are. For any, <laughs> anyone who's just joining us, I am Libba Beecham, the Interim Executive Director here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Let's go around the table. I'm Leslie Jones, Collections and Archives Manager. Yay! I am Marie Bartlett, the Director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center. I'm Guada Rodriguez, media producer. Yay! <laughs> so as I was saying, it will come as no surprise uh, to folks who have followed us for a while that the lady I have picked today is Girl Scouts founder Juliet Gordon Lowe. Now, we'll dive into each of our ladies, but I want to go around the table to see who we have selected so folks know uh, who we're going to dive into. So, Leslie, who was your lady of history? The amazing and lovely Victoria Woodhull. Ah, the amazing and lovely Victoria Woodhull. Okay, we'll learn a bit about her. I want to go to Guada next because I know you've got one because Marie totally nerded out and got like three. I can't <laughs> choose one. Well, it's understandable. But yeah, let's go to Guada. Who did you choose today? I chose Leonor Villegas de Magnon. So her lifespan is from 1876 to 1955. Oh, okay. So we'll learn about her as well. And Marie, who were the three, your top three ladies? Well, I, I have three categories. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to be here for a, a, a three-hour fight. No. <laughs> now, who you got? Uh, so under monarchy, we have the Elizabeth. So Elizabeth I and then Elizabeth Ooh. II. For writers, I've narrowed it down to Louisa May Alcott uh -huh. and Margaret Mitchell. And then for Civil War topics, I've narrowed it down to Clara Barton. Oh, nice, nice. Very, those, are, those are excellent ladies, indeed. Well, very cool. So I guess I'll just, I'll start us off. I mean, y'all know quite a bit about Juliet Lowe, I bet, at this point already. Just for anyone who is not familiar, Juliet Gordon Lowe is the founder of the Girl Scouts of the United States. And she has fascinated me ever since I was really given the opportunity to learn about her. We started portraying her and offering her for educational programs a few years ago at the request of a school because Juliet Lowe is from Savannah, Georgia. And her life has fascinated me because I love that she starts out in this very privileged world, wealthy world. She's expected to, to marry well, and, and indeed she does. She marries someone who is extremely wealthy, far more wealthy than her family was, in get fact. It. Was that? Get it, girl, get yeah, it. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, but she would claim she married for love, you see. In fact, there's a, there's a lot of drama surrounding her love with William Mackie Lowe and her marriage. Um, this was very much a, both families did not think that they would be a suitable pair yes. because of uh, the stations in life. But we'll get in, we'll get into that a little bit. But like 
I just the arc of her whole life. It's this woman who is given every opportunity to have a very a life of ease, <laughs> and that just does not work with her. She has to do things. She wants to be of use in this world. And that's, you know, one of her direct quotes is she wants to be of use in this world. And she has a long time of trying to figure that out. And the challenges she comes across and, and really lead her to creating the Girl Scouts, which I don't think she ever would have really imagined her founding this this huge now organization. I mean, there are now millions of Girl Scouts across the world now. And she started it with 18 girls in Savannah, Georgia in 1912. And so something that I really admire about Juliet Lowe is that she took that privilege and took that opportunity to create something that girls of all social classes, especially today, of course, can enjoy. So I figured since I I want to know what y'all are curious about Juliet Lowe, and you can you can quiz me. But I know you've kind of gotten a gist of her story. What has come up in your mind that you would love to know more about when it comes to Daisy or Juliet Lowe? I'm curious why she started it. Was the Boy Scouts around already? Or? Yeah, yeah. So a really interesting story about how she even gets the inspiration to start Girl Scouts. So she is at an event where Sir Robert Baden. Powell is, and he is a very famous uh, British army scout. He comes to fame in England for his work during the Boer War, which took place in South Africa. I don't know a lot about that, but I do know that because he was such a an effective scout, he starts this, he creates his own manual. Uh, he knows that young men are interested in scouting, and it turns out that young boys are, are there therefore interested in scouting. So he creates this written manual that just, it's super popular. It's clear that boys want to learn these skills, they're interested. And so that's what leads to the formation of the Boy Scouts. But there are also many girls at this time in England who are probably jealous of all the fun things that their brothers and cousins get to do. And I've heard at least a story. that there were a, a lot of girls who tried to sign up for Boy Scouts, um, some even trying to register under like their brother's initials or names or their initials and stuff. And so that leads to an organization called the Girl Guides, and that's led by his sister, Agnes Powell. And it's a great organization. It's uh, Keep in mind, it's Girl Guides, not Scouts. It was not deemed appropriate at the time for girls to be considered Scouts, Mostly because this is a military position and, you know, girls and women are not serving in that capacity yet. But Girl Guides does take on nature study, hiking, you know, learning skills of first aid, learning skills that they're going to use in their adult life when they're mothers and in their domestic life. And that's sort of what gets Juliet Lowe interested in that she meets who she will call BP. Um, They become very good friends. And in fact, I think it's quite obvious she had at least a big crush on uh, Sir Robert Baden-Powell. Yeah, she was definitely in love with him, which is just like, oh, heartbreak for, for Daisy. They do not end up being together. But they remain really good friends, and he inspires her to start this organization. She leads a couple of girl guide groups in both England and Scotland for a time, and then takes this idea with permission, with permission from BP. 
to the United States, 1912, Savannah, Georgia, starts a troop of 18 girls. And I think something that I also really admire about Daisy, as I'll call her now, as that is her, her fun nickname, is that she really didn't have all the skills of organization or administrative skills, logistics, but she was a visionary. You know, she had this vision. She was someone who could recruit, 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 and inspire, sometimes even coerce people. There's a really funny story um, that I came across of, like, so she had hearing problems all, all her life, and she often used this to her advantage. Uh, I remember a fun story when she was trying to convince a friend to become a Girl Scout troop leader, and the woman was refusing, saying, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. And, of course, Daisy was just like, oh, well, great, I'm so glad it's set, and you'll be starting this Saturday, blah, 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 as if she had accepted it. So she heard what she wanted to hear, and she ended up being a troop leader. So. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, love it. yeah. There's there's so many anecdotes of just how of her how quirky she was, um, how eccentric, how vivacious and funny. She was definitely the the family's comedic relief through a lot of hard times. And I think she just brings that spirit and attitude of, you know what, I may not be able to do everything, but I'm gonna do everything I can, you know, to the best of my ability. And I guess I'll end lastly to see if y'all have any uh, other questions about Juliet Lowe. I admire that she really pushed her Girl Scouts to consider careers and learning about things that they wouldn't have been expected to. So for instance, you know, she was really fascinated by aviation, for instance. So she, she even convinced one of her pilot friends, Neville Smith, to take her up uh, in a plane. And this is like, you know, early days of flying, probably like 1917 or something, you know, we're just a few years away from like really getting off the ground with flight and she's ready. She's adventurous and she's encouraging all of these girls in the early 1900s to pursue these careers that are male dominated. So um, not only aviation, architecture, uh, translation services, of course, other careers that women are going into like nursing as well. I was interested to learn that there's even a badge for the motorist. Uh, so she was, even as early as 1920, they had badges for learning how to drive an automobile, which I had to be 16. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, she's pushing all of these boundaries. And I think that's something I've, I've really admired about her. I'll take maybe one or two questions more and we can... I have one. Yeah, yeah, go on. I know she wasn't able to have her own family. That's right. But I'm kind of curious how that life happening, how did that impact her? I pretty much want to know if it influenced her decisions with like the Girl Scouts. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, it kind of could have... I think if she was able to have children, so I'll back up and say that she was just medically, I don't know this precise condition or anything, but she was unable to have children of her own, which um, she learned fairly early on in her marriage. So just to also back up a little bit more, you know, her marriage starts out pretty chaotically. She is removed from her home and goes all the way to Scotland to live uh, on their estate there. They had homes in Scotland and England. As I said, William Mackie was very wealthy. I mean, like akin to friends with royalty, you know. And she suffers a lot of hearing loss, like literally on the day of her wedding, a grain of rice, 
from the you know being thrown in the air as they're leaving the chapel gets lodged into her ear she already has chronic hearing problems from childhood and that further exacerbates the the issues and she's sick in bed for weeks from this she's away from home so she can't communicate with her husband very well he's also got some gambling problems so he's also just away and she's isolated and then you know she finds out that she's unable to have a family that's got to be a really big blow to her as someone especially of her time being expected to honor that duty and probably hoping for a family of her own but that is in large part the reason that she seeks out other purpose in her life and i think that it's fair to say that her inability to have children the chaos of and challenges of her marriage that isolation leads her to seek that being of use in this world you know to to seek that and that eventually and here comes Robert Baden-Powell talking about Boy Scouts and Girl Guides and she sees this one organization that she can have so she can place all of her passions in because even as a child she would go from one thing to another she'd want to she would think oh I'm going to be a sculptor no 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 I'm going to be a painter no I think I'll go into fashion she was very artistically driven but she also was a bit of a tomboy, as we'd call him, and loved being outside in nature and, and the arts and exercise and fresh air. So it was like this organization that was almost, it seemed probably made for her in a sense to lead. But that's a good point that had she had children and had dedicated her time to that, I mean, who knows when girl guiding or girl scouts would have ever came about. So, yeah. You have one of the more eccentric stories Oh yes, oh yes. I got yeah. You got to have at least one. Um, so I think it the one that I really like to tell says a lot about her um, when she's a bit older. Um, she's she's married still. She's still in that kind of finding her place in society now that she has entered a whole other level of British society. And like I said, her husband was at a far more of an aristocrat. Did not have to work, you know. And she was at a party. And at many of these parties, she got bored. I think it was maybe just a bit too stuffy for her. And so with her usual antics, she would try to entertain the crowd. And on one particular night, she decided that it would be great to go night fishing. And she gets, there must have been a pond nearby or something, like a lake nearby where, where this party was happening. And she takes some of her friends and the guests to go night fishing. And the way that she says this happened is that she is, of course, the first to cast her reel. And almost immediately, she catches what she thinks is a fish. It is not a fish. It is one of the guest's earlobes. And she, because of her hearing problems, she cannot hear the man yelping, you know, in pain. Luckily, he was not, like, seriously injured or anything, but um, I like to say when I'm portraying her that she, I don't think she's been invited back to that party. <laughs> but, Could you imagine she's, like, struggling oh my trying goodness. to get I know, it reeled right? in? Yeah, and, and how good it would have been to have those first aid skills at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's stories like that where, you know, there's another quirky story where she's at an awards ceremony and she sees everybody rise to give a standing ovation for someone that they're honoring. And she's like, oh, well, I don't who it is but I better stand up and be polite and she gives uh, a standing ovation herself and they were honoring her so there she was <laughs> surrounded by everyone and giving herself a standing ovation applauding 
But, you know, I think people really accepted those quirks about her. And I, I honestly think it probably helped her with recruiting because people are going to talk about those personalities and what they're doing and, and how interesting of a woman she is at this time. So, so yeah, I, I highly encourage folks to learn more about Juliet Lowe. Um, there's an excellent biography by Stacy Cordery that goes into so much more detail. And I, I think that what you gain from learning about Juliet Lowe is that I think another important point to make is that yes, she is this incredibly inspiring and uh, eccentric and progressive woman. At the same time, she's also got less pro- less progressive ideas and beliefs, of, of course, surrounding race uh, during her time. And there's sort of this balancing act I've had to play with, like learning about her because. While she had prejudices for sure, she also felt strongly that it was the future of Girl Scouts was not up to her and that it was up to the girls themselves. And, you know, when it comes to like integrating at the time for during her time, we're talking about, you know, she dies in 1926. The first official African-American Girl Scout troop really doesn't happen until much later, like officially. But there were smaller groups that were unofficial as, as early as 1917. And she doesn't, you know, degrade them. She doesn't say this is, like, she doesn't stop that from happening. And it's sort of this, for her time, she's trying to decide, okay, if we do allow official Girl Scout troops with Black Girl Scouts, is that going to affect the mission of growing further and further? Is it better to just have these unofficial Girl Scout troops and, you know, let them do their thing unofficially? So it is, I think for her, it was also kind of a balancing act of the culture and the beliefs at the time. But at the same time, it's still pretty darn progressive for (laughs) the early 1900s. So so yeah, it's a fascinating person. Uh, I I think those kind of complexities offer so much more insight into the women that we're discussing today. And and yeah, I highly recommend learning more about Juliet Gordon-Lowe. There's so much more to say, but we've got a lot of ladies to, to talk about. So... Why don't we go to you, Leslie? Me. Okay. Yeah. So Victoria Woodhull was born Victoria Claflin, and her and her sister were actually drug into the spiritualism field, as some people might know from my other podcasts and things. I did my thesis on spiritualism. Her dad saw a traveling show of the Fox sisters. Oh, yeah. And he thought, I can get my daughters to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy. (laughs) So um, Victoria becomes a magnet healer. So by using, you know how some people wear those bracelets today that have the magnets? Mm -hmm. So she basically thought she could cure people through her magnets. Um, And that's actually how she met Cornelius Vanderbilt you know, the railroad magnet. Yeah. Um, She convinced him that she could cure his syphilis with magnets. Spoilers, he died of syphilis. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Yep. But by meeting him, she got enough money to actually become the first woman broker on the New York Stock Exchange with her sister. That's interesting. Yeah, very cool. So she becomes, uh, like, did she have any interest in money or, like, were there were there any indicators before uh, she joined that she's, like, this, you know, 
math whiz or, or anything. Like, she just has something about her that would drive her toward, like, a business kind of career. So her husband, she married very, very young. Mm. And her husband was an alcoholic mm. and did not help her at all mm. in the home. And she thought, I don't need to rely on a man. I have two children to support. Mm. I've got to think of something. I see. So kind of her manipulation of Cornelius Vanderbilt actually helped her gain respectability. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Believe it or not. And she went from that to becoming an editor. She created her own newspaper with her sister. Um, they started the Woodhull and Claflin's newsletter that was basically about women's rights. Okay, yeah. She was the main editor for that. And then she was, a, of course, a women's rights advocate from that. She believed that women deserve the right to vote and go against their husbands if they don't believe the same thing. Uh-huh. Shocker, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, she was an abolitionist. But I think one of the coolest things was she was presidential candidate. She ran for president three times. Whoa. 1872, 1884, and 1892. Was she the very first woman to ever run for ever. president? What? Yeah. That's so and, cool. And, you know, we didn't get the vote till the 1920s, and yeah. she, you know, got us to presidential candidacy way before that. Yeah. And she knew she wasn't going to win. Right. It was more she wanted to show women have a voice, too. But also her running mate was Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And that was because she wanted to show, you know, black people have rights just as much as women do. Like, Mm -hmm. we're equals. So that was one of my favorite things about her. Yeah, I'm curious to learn about the reaction to her presidential campaign. I mean, I'm sure there were lots of suffragists who were just like, yeah, let's go. But I'm sure there were probably more people who were probably... I mean, denigrating toward her? Or? Yeah, so she she ran on her own. It was an independent, I think it was something like the National Women's Advocacy Campaign. So, you know, Republicans, Democrats, her own woman's campaign. Yeah. So it was it was encouraged by Elizabeth K. Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, you know, all the originals. But she, she just kept running over and over to show, like, women are here, we are here. Mm-hmm. So did she continue in the spiritualism movement? Oh, yeah. I'm curious about that, too. She did. She became president of one of the spiritualism associations in New York. That's where they lived. And she continued doing magnetic healing. She went on lecture circuits, which was a big deal, you know, for women in the 1880s to be able to do that. And she traveled to London. She did all this stuff talking about women's rights and about spiritualism. Ah. Now, would you say that she wholeheartedly believed in her spiritualist practices? No. No, really? So is that how, how do you know that? Well, um, from the very beginning with her dad going, they can do that. Yeah. So they he pushed them into doing this. Mm-hmm. But then after that, she married a man in the 1880s who was from London, and he said, you have to stop this. You know it's not real. Cut it out. And Mm -hmm. she was like, you know what? We'll cut it out. I am denouncing spiritualism. It was all fake. I wanted to get the word out about women's rights because if if you look at the podcast we actually did Mm -hmm. before about spiritualism and women's rights, if you were a spiritualist, you also were about women's rights. Yeah. So it was kind of a way to get herself in there in the women's rights circuit with Elizabeth Casey and, and Yeah, yeah, it's pretty smart. I mean, you know, like there's a, a little bit of just like, oh, she's talking about people's loved ones and it's kind of like 
uh, icky territory in a way ethically. Well, she didn't do those. She did oh, the magnetic healing, you know, I see, which I is see. still kind of sketchy. Yeah. Because she, she was convincing people she could heal them. Uh-huh. But she wasn't messing with the dead. You know what would be really healing is women's rights to vote, <laughs> Mr. Van... Whatever his name was. What was it? Vanderbilt? Vanderbilt, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, come for the magnetic healing. Stay for the women's rights. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Guada, did you have anything you're curious about with Victoria Woodall? Well, did her husband... Did he influence her choices in a way? Like, after that whole period of, of what she was doing... Yeah, so she went to Britain because she actually was banished. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, all the women there were pro-Victoria Woodhull at first, but when they realized she was an advocate for free love, which isn't 1970s free love, it's women being able to divorce if their husbands aren't great, because, you know, her husband was not great. I see. Um, So she believed in free love, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and all of them were very Christian, very, that's not okay. They essentially banished her socially to where she could not be in America at all. Wow. So her and her sister go there, and she marries that man, and he's telling her, you know, you don't need to do this anymore. You have me. We don't have to deal with this anymore. And so she just stopped doing all of that and just lived the rest of her life in Britain. Okay. So did she, so did her ideological views change? A little bit. Okay. She still believed in free love. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did get married three times. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So she divorced twice. So yeah. that was a big deal back yeah, then. Yeah. But also, she one of the big things I didn't even talk about was that she believed women should be able to dress how they wanted. Oh. So she actually dressed in slacks and, and suits, and she cut her hair really short. Oh, wow. Because um, she believed, hey, men are comfortable. Why can't we be comfortable? <laughs> uh-huh. So that is something she kept on doing. Yeah. But the, the basically the spiritualism, he was like, he was very Christian too. And mm-hmm. he said, this has got to go. And she goes, you know what? I agree with you. Yeah. Maybe she was like, oh, I can talk about women's rights and all this stuff without, without that. Yeah. Fraud. Yes. <laughs> without the whole fraud thing. <laughs> No, that's fascinating. Uh, So do you have any recommendations on where people can learn more about Victoria Woodall specifically? Are there any museums that highlight her or books that you like? Uh, There is in Lilydale, that town entirely made of spiritualists. They have a section specifically dedicated to her. Oh, nice. Because she was a big deal, not just for women's rights, but for spiritualism, because she kind of, you know, made it more respectable. Mm -hmm. That's Lily... Lilydale, it's a town in New York. In New York, okay. Very cool, very cool. All right, Victoria Woodall, definitely someone to check out further. I'm trying to, it seems like so far we've got very driven women, which I think if you're going to be a woman that makes it in the history books, you got to be pretty driven and pretty courageous in Especially a lot of ways. Especially in those time periods. Yes, exactly. And that seems like Victoria Woodall, I mean, that takes that takes a lot of social capital, I would say, to really put on the line. Absolutely. I mean, for her, it's almost remarkable that she, I mean, you said she was banished, but it seems pretty remarkable that she was able to even get that much of a spotlight uh, in general. And in a sense, I wonder if it was almost like a spectacle to some people, uh, something to have in the newspapers as like a media frenzy rather than something that's very like a respectable article. Would you? What's your sense of how she was portrayed in the media at the time? There is a lot of political cartoons oh. considering her a farce because oh, she yeah. believed in the free love. She had, There's this one famous one. Or she has devil horns and the the wings and stuff, and, and she's got like a free love 
like hammer running on on a woman it's just they all thought she was a joke uh -huh. and yet she kept going even though everyone did not believe in her a great great example of any publicity is good publicity <laughs> <I suppose. laughs> one of the reasons she isn't brought up today if yeah. nobody knows her really even though she ran for president yeah um, right Why is is, is because of elizabeth katie stanton uh, and her banishment yeah, you know that's interesting because there's a there's sort of a correlation between Lucy Stone and her not being as recognized as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and very briefly, I'll just say that that's mostly because there was such a big rift in, between Lucy Stone and that yes. group, but Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and but I have to say Susan B. Anthony when she's writing the history of the movement, she does request Lucy Stone's participation in this, but I think at the time they had not healed that rift, and so Lucy decides to not participate, and therefore she is kind of lost in, in the history books, and I imagine they didn't include Victoria Woodall in that Absolutely either. not, yeah. even though they encouraged her to run for president. Right. <laughs> like, hey, Lucy, we have this great idea that you should do. Yeah. And then you get all the blame in weird political cartoons and we'll- Oh, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like, hey, Victoria, how about you do this? Yeah. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. I said Lucy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, no, I don't, I don't think Lucy would have ever taken the charge Lucy of- Lucy was a strong woman too. Though. Oh, she was. Absolutely. And I mean, I could blah, blah, blah about yeah. her. That's uh, your other favorite. Lot. She is. Yeah, yeah. That's someone <laughs> I've, I've done quite a bit of research on. So I, I definitely encourage learning about Lucy Stone too. Excellent. Anything else to say on Victoria Woodall? Any other questions? Something really cool. I was just, you know, refreshing my memory. Yeah. And something really cool I found, she was the first woman to drive a car in Hyde Park. Oh, that's cool. In in New York? In or London. No, no, London. Hyde Park's in London. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The first woman ever. Oh, that's so Isn't fun. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. hope she didn't run into anything. Or, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they would have talked about I, that I think so. Least. Yeah, there would have been a political cartoon about that. Probably. <laughs> yeah. 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 Did you say she was living in London once she was banned from America? Mm-hmm. So yeah. What were their views about her? Did they know about her? Did they feel some type of... Oh, yeah. Does she have a reputation there? It's interesting because in America, her spiritualism was kind of blasé, whatever. But in London, she actually talked and sold out auditoriums. Oh, nice. Where thousands of people wow. would come and see her talk. So when she said she wasn't a spiritualist and it all wasn't true, yeah. I imagine it would hit much harder for them than it did yeah. for Americans. Right, right. That's That's fascinating. Wow, so she really was a celebrity mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, cool. Let's let's uh, move on to Guada's historical yeah. lady. Very interested. I don't know anything about her. Yeah, I, don't, I her. don't either. So, yeah, give us an intro. So I ran into a little pink book at my library at UNG when I was still attending. And the title, I believe, was The Rebel, if not The Little Rebel. Mm -hmm. But I can double-check that and let you guys know again. Yeah. Um, so her name is Leonor Villegas de Magnon, and she was she was Mexican-American at the time. It's kind of hard to say because there were several conflicts going on at the time of her birth, mm -hmm. and being considered Mexican-American was almost undistinguishable uh -huh. between the borderlines yeah. and the border of Mexico and America. So she's considered a political activist, a teacher, and a journalist, hmm. and also a nurse. Oh, cool. <laughs> so she's also a type of woman that kind of belongs in the lost in history uh, category. Yeah. So she was born in 1876 in Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, Mexico. 
and she was a daughter of a very wealthy man, and she was she belonged to the wealthy Mexican aristocratic family. Mm-hmm. And so, in her family home, they had they had two houses, one for the summer, one for the winter. Uh-huh, so they, yes. they they had a lot of farm animals. They had several hands helping in the fields, many hands employed, and her father's business was farming, ranching, imports, and exports of goods. So, yes, definitely a wealthy family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> she was educated in America, in New York. Oh, wow. And she had a younger brother who was born in America. So she was born in Mexico. He was born in America. So there is already, a, like, I don't want to say a border drawn, but, like, kind of, like, imaginary of between a life here and a life there. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Later on in her life, she did attend a nursing center, the National Red Cross, where she received her credentials. And so I'm going to jump into to what did she do? Yeah, yeah. So on March 17th of 1913, she founded a brigade in Laredo, Mexico, and also in Nuevo Laredo, uh, which is in Texas. And that was La Cruz Blanca, which is the White Cross. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and... It later, it later on transformed into the White Cross, the National White Cross, hmm. the, the Cruz Blanca Nacional. So this is when she meets the founder of the White Cross neutral, or rather the neutral White Cross. And I'll explain a little later yeah. on why these, all these different names are going uh-huh. on with the White Cross. So in the early days of the revolution, the Red in Mexico, the Red Cross would only provide aid to what is called El Ejército Porfiriano, which is the Mexican Federal Army, and they really refused to treat insurgents. So they served as a Leonor and the White Cross, the order that she founded. They served as a corps of nurses for the revolutionary forces, and they centered around the border region, and they went all the way to Mexico City. So they didn't just want to help the rebels, they really wanted to help all soldiers mm-hmm. and they wanted to serve as nurses which was something at the time that the red cross wasn't doing in the early days of the revolution so they wanted to kind of just be there for for both for for all injured so you said that the red cross did not have many nurses but that's why this white cross was formed well the white cross there is the the neutral white cross that was formed first and that one was formed by Elena Arismendi. And that was in an effort to to help all soldiers and also the rebels who were fighting the Mexican Revolution. And there were a lot of people who kind of believed in their ideals and they kind of didn't want to listen to the, the president at the time mm-hmm. because they didn't believe what he was saying and the actions didn't didn't really look promising. Yeah. <laughs> And so that's where the neutral white cross is formed. And then Leonor forms a brigade to kind of help cover a region that Elena Arismendi was, wasn't covering, which was the borderline. Which I'm sure would have obviously more insurgents, as you're saying. Yes. So more opportunity to help everyone who is involved in in this. Now, I'm, I'm curious from y'all's perspective, is it, has it been the case in history <laughs> that medical that 
soldiers for the enemy would be treated medically or given any kind of medical treatment? I mean, is, did that happen in the Civil War and the Revolution of our own? Well, it depends on when we start having yeah. like actual medical treatment versus, hey, you're probably going to die. Right, yeah. It's uh, like, well, look, it's, it's 7076. Yeah. We don't have a lot of options here. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah this doesn't look good for you, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess, like, where, where do you want to draw the line in history? But, say, like, American Revolution. Yeah. Doctor units don't exactly exist. Uh-huh. Uh, that go around is kind of like, oh, we're going to help treat our wounded, but that's uh, more like, you know, make them comfortable. Right. And, like, see if we can do it. Yeah. Possibly. And they didn't have enough supplies, too. Oh, they so they, obviously they wouldn't prioritize, like, the loyalists or whatever, oh, yeah. you know, at that at that time. So if they were taken sense. prisoner, yeah. then you were expected to treat them whether that happened all right. the time or not. Yeah. <laughs> What about the Civil War, though? Uh, in the Civil War, we actually do have, like, medical units. We have surgery coming onto the scene and actually being a viable option. So we see more medical practice. We have some medicines that are more potent right? Uh, that can be given. We have nursing corps, which are founded. Of course, doctors are more or less assigned to units. So you have army yeah. doctors. Uh-huh. You have a medical unit within the army. So the South has their doctors. The North has their doctors. Again, if somebody was captured right. and therefore a prisoner of your side, but they're from the other side, technically you are supposed to treat them uh-huh. and make sure that they're okay. Right. But did that happen? Did that happen? Yeah. I mean, they didn't want them to get better and then go start killing right. people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm just imagining places like, you know, like Andersonville and stuff where it's like obviously not getting the best treatment because there's like no supplies or really anything going on there. So... So, okay, so it's interesting that, like, we, we there there's some, you know, expectation to care for prisoners to some degree, but it sounds like, is it Leonora? Leonor. Leonor was advocating for the equal treatment of soldiers, whether they were, you know, the so-called enemy or, or not. Yes. Yeah. Because um, they're just a neutral organization there to help. Mm. Yes. And this was in the 1800s? Late 1800s, so during the Mexican Revolution, which was actually not late 1800s, it was 1910-ish okay. when this started. So she wanted to do this because she also held the same political beliefs as the people that were fighting against, well, the ideals of the president at the time. Okay. And so she held those same ideals, and she also did not support the president's beliefs and what he stood for. So she she started the White Cross for that reason, and she initially funded the organization with her money. I, I am curious, though, do you happen to know much about the president's point of view, just so the listeners kind of have a sense of what his beliefs were? Uh, a little. Porfirio Diaz was the president, and his presidency lasted 35 years. Wow. And that already had established a problem by the end of his presidency, because it was... Um, He's not really making progress for the working class. Mm. Is he more of a dictator? Yes. Ah, I see. And so after him came another president, Victoriano Huerta, and his presidency was only about two or three years, 1913 to 1914. Mm. And he pretty much had to leave. Like, problems were already happening. Yeah, just chaos. Yeah. And so the revolution breaks out, and it's pretty much the working class wanting to be recognized for for who they are and 
be accepted into society, really. Is this a push for, like, I mean, you say president, like, were they technically able to vote for the president, but it just somehow ended up being <laughs> him for 35 years straight? That kind of situation? Or, like, okay, I see. So this is the working class. Like, I wonder if they were, you know, they've seen other revolutions and other nations and they're seeing like okay we want some say in our own government so they're 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 pushing for a democracy yes that actually is (laughs) working a real democracy at this time interesting yeah yeah and she at the time when that started she used her own home uh, which had previously been a kindergarten uh, where she taught. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she, she had set up a bilingual kid- kindergarten after receiving her like teaching credentials from, from New York. Oh. And so she made that into a, a makeshift hospital mm. at the time. And she, she also had to go out and raise money from people that she knew, friends, just she wealthy people that she knew. She wrote political pieces supporting the revolution and the democratic cause and ideals. She also wrote informational articles about the revolution and its progress during the time. And this is pretty, I mean, this this seems pretty rebellious because you're saying that she is a, she's for the working class ideals and what they're campaigning for, but definitely against the president at the time and his viewpoint. It seems like that's a pretty risky situation for her, but did her family and wealth and status kind of shield her from any kind of like threats or anything? Or do you know any any kind of like what the risks were for her? It gets interesting because she was actually at a pretty convenient location at the time. She was in America. Ah, yes. (laughs) She had the privilege of being able to go over here and do this and say this, but I'm also not really in the midst of danger right. because I can just come back on this other side. She yeah. took advantage of the First Amendment. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. So she's she really is of these two cultures. I mean, she's been educated in America. Her brother is an American citizen, but she's obviously got very close ties to her family in Mexico and I wonder, do you happen to know if her family was very supportive of this or did they have big rifts in their own family? Do you know? I am trying to remember, but I know that as well when I read the book, but she did remove herself from her family Mm. for some time to really focus in the efforts. That means she went away from her home. She Mm -hmm. went to Mexico and she traveled who knows for how many days, I don't recall, but I know she was very, very involved and she she left her kids in the care of somebody else. I, they might have had a nanny. I could be wrong, so I'm not going to say that's accurately what happened, but I know she did extensive traveling to help heal certain people who were fighting at the time and supply other nurses with supplies. and also send messages. Mm, wow. So the articles that she wrote were actually printed in America and they were like alternative presses. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they were probably released to the local areas where mm-hmm. she where she was, like in Laredo, Texas. But yeah, she, she decided to kind of step away from her family, which at the time I think was not normal. 
right? right? Yeah. For that to happen. What's kind of really attracted me to her story is that she spent the last few decades of her life really pushing for this story to be published. Mm -hmm. And she was refused so many times. She did not live to see the publication of her book. Wow. And she really, she wanted to preserve the history of all the women that she worked with. And she lost several friends, of course, because war, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it wasn't until uh, her granddaughter was actually the one who took lead in this project and was the one who got it published. And it's sad that she wasn't able to see that come yeah. to fruition. And even though that that book is here, it's still really hard to find information about her life, like the little details. It's really all just in that book. Yeah. And is this an autobiography of her? It is, but she refers to herself like in the third person. I see. As yeah. The rebel. I see. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> the rebel. She got that name from her dad when she was born. Her mom, her mom passed away, and there were a group of rebels that came to. They weren't rebels. They were bandits that showed up to the farm, and her father noticed them at a distance, and so. Obviously, they were coming in to steal stuff, steal supplies. He has a lot of imported goods and goods that have to be exported. And so he brought them wine. He brought them things just to kind of settle them down because mm -hmm. there's, it's just their family there and a little baby. And mm -hmm. so the bandits want to know who he has hiding somewhere because they hear muffled noises. And so her mom had just given birth and... He shows them to where the noises are coming from, and he tells them, I have no rebels hiding in this house. The only rebel that is hiding in this house is her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they show them, and it's the baby, you know, Aww. it's this little girl, and that's where the name came from, the rebel. Wow. And she really honed that name and referred to herself as the rebel her whole life of pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's got to that's got to be uh, somewhere in the back of her mind, you know, that's sort of driving <laughs> driving her a bit. That's a that's it's it's fascinating to learn more about her and I I wonder um with her participation in the nursing corps um did she what kind of impact did she have on the actual like revolution itself what or maybe you could give us a little context as to how that ends you know how does this re is it successful for the working party is it not i mean where does what's the trajectory of that i would say in a way because it did bring awareness to the working class but things were st stable-ish for some time and I'll, I'll i'll leave it at that for some time. yeah <laughs> i don't know much more mm -hmm. about the effects of the war in the following decade mm -hmm. but um that's all I can say. Wealthy Lenore. She has Mexican and American ties, educated in America. She develops this nursing corps, which is uh, neutral because you're saying she's going to accept, she's going to help soldiers on each side of it. So she initiates the brigade, the, the brigade. brigade from the neutral white cross. So her brigade, the full name is, is the Constitutionalist White Cross. Aha. Uh -huh. The Constitutionalist White Cross. 
and she's leading this. So she's really the person who is, I, I would imagine she was also recruiting nurses for this. Yes. So that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, influence. She's also doing the logistics for supplies for all of these nurses. I imagine that she's also using her social, you know, yes. uh, reputation to, to do all of this and make connections for donations as well of yes. supplies. And yet she's not only, as if that wasn't enough, she's also writing, as, a, as you said, she's a journalist, so she's writing these political articles and eventually her own magazine, did you say? I don't know if I'm mixing up. I think I might be mixing up. I don't know if she is the founder of these magazines, but I know she wrote for a few. Yeah, yeah. So she's writing in these, she's writing in various magazines. This is the perspective of a Mexican-American woman, uh, a political activist, which is seems pretty pretty cool for uh, early 1900s. Leslie, what's your question for Guada? After the war ended, was she allowed to go see her family? Well, that's a great question because her family was actually in Texas when she moved. So she gets married, she goes to Mexico, and then she wants to visit her, her dad because he ends up getting sick and it look, doesn't look very promising. Mm. It might, you know, he might not be with them for, for a while. And so... She goes, she goes back to Texas and, you know, the revolution happens and chaos and she, she has to stay there. She has to stay, stay in Texas. She can't go back to Mexico. Mm. And I, I do know why, just not like right now. I wonder if it was just the, the risk of going so back she never ever got to go back to Mexico. Oh, she she definitely went back. Oh, okay. Yes, but it was just during a, that time where she wasn't able to go back for X reason. I can't remember. I'm sorry. And probably because so, she was a rebel, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's where in in Texas, that's where she she establishes her home. She establishes the kindergarten, and she begins her involvement in the political sphere at the time. Yeah, I, that sounds fascinating. Any any questions for you, Marie? So she was a teacher originally, right? So she went to New York. Do we know what school she went to in New York? Yes. She attended Mount St. Ursula's Convent, where she received a bachelor's degree and teaching certificate. That's pretty cool because that has to be early 1900s. So she's, a, she's very early in the women going to college movement. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool, and especially to make that huge trek from I was gonna say that all Texas or Mexico York. all the way to New York. It was because her dad had he eventually got remarried because his first wife passed away, and she was very very young, and these were not her kids, uh-huh. <laughs> so she sent them off to boarding school. I see. Oh, so she did she ever have children of her own though? She had children of her own. Yeah. Yes, while she was occupied with this whole nursing era in her life her husband was kind of left in charge of them yeah she went and that's pretty interesting too yeah (laughs) now i wonder so was her husband at the time of her you know doing all of this activism was he also supportive of her and like working alongside her with this movement that's a great question i am trying to recollect I want to say that they had some troubles yeah i I feel like i remember reading that they had some troubles I can't say specifically like what type of conversations might have happened, mm-hmm. but I, I do recall there were some 
some conflict. Yeah, yeah. That's so. So far, we have three pretty rebellious women. Very in their strong own. women. Yes, yes. Driven, and I think that you know, even with the tumultuous parts of their life, they they overcome it, which is very very cool. So great connections there. Want to dive into Marie's three <laughs> women? Yeah, let's let's go for it. So Marie, who would you like to discuss first? Well, I have I have the Elizabeths first. Ah, yes. I like. I think that it's interesting because, well, they're both named Elizabeth, but there's also more similarities between them. They were never supposed to come to the throne, neither of them. Yeah. They were both very far down the line of secession, and I think it's really interesting that these are probably, like, two of the greatest rulers that England has had Mm -hmm. um, and that they weren't supposed to be in charge. Right. Um, and also that they're really strong rulers that are both women. Of course, Elizabeth I, uh, you know, way back in the Renaissance, or, uh, she had way more challenges to face in terms of being a woman. They thought, like, oh my gosh, you can't rule because you're not a man. Her mother was essentially beheaded because she was not a boy mm-hmm. uh, when she was born. So, amongst other things, but that's one of the reasons. Right. But I just think that... She ruled with such a strong, even keel and in such a time of great turmoil mm. in England that she really was able to power through and use this kind of form of soft power and this really idea of image that I'm not mm. sure if we've really like seen before since like this idea of the virgin queen, uh-huh. that she is this untouchable, almost deity-like figure right. in England, uh-huh. especially when she's trying to consolidate power and rule with the Church of England and keep the Catholics happy. And then she also has like these weird Puritans that she keep like, she calls them her Puritan choir in Parliament. <laughs> Like, oh, yes, the Puritan Choir, got it again. (laughs) And just trying to keep all of these groups together and going and creating this beautiful Elizabethan golden age, Mm. I think is really amazing. Elizabeth II also faces time, like, she, you know, comes to the throne in the 50s. And that's a time where there is a lot of still ideas about what it means to be a woman and to be a woman in power. Mm -hmm. For her to be a woman in power at that time is incredible. You know, we don't see a lot of world leaders even today who are women. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, just 25 when she came wow. to the throne, which is my age. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine having that kind of pressure. <laughs> right. Like right now, like to be on the world stage in that way. She was also, you know, a mom at, you know, at least I think she had her two kids when she came to the throne and then she had two after. But to, you know, be a mom to now... Elizabeth II, she did not have as much political power by any means. She was more of this very much soft social power, but she kept England together through a time of essentially decolonization. Mm. When Elizabeth I was kind of on the, the front end of that, Elizabeth II was on the back end. That's of interesting. That. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I, that's why it happened together because they're both named Elizabeth, and also I think that they're kind of two, two sides to a coin yeah. in a way. That there are a lot of similarities between them, but of course, differences as well. For writers, I also chose two that I think are, they, they wrote about similar time periods, but in completely different ways. Yeah. Because Louisa May Alcott and Margaret Mitchell, their most successful works were set during the American Civil War. Of course, yeah. one was set in the North, one was set in the South. So I think it's also really interesting because Louisa May Alcott wrote during the American Civil War. Like, she, I mean, she, Louisa May Alcott was alive during the American Civil War. Yeah. So she was writing about a lived experience that she right. had. And Louisa May Alcott, she was a Civil War nurse. I think it's incredibly, her family was just incredibly fascinating. They were just these kind of like 
if we were if they were around today or in the 70s like we would think that they're just kind of this like commune hippie society oh yeah <laughs> you know like they're these um unitarians they were these unitarians who just kind of were doing their own thing out in new england and having a good time at it and we're encouraging of all their daughters to go out and to be something yeah uh, at a time where maybe you know women weren't really supposed to go out and like be nurses and write and this mm-hmm. was all very new at that time but Louise may alcott also did this out of necessity because she needed money uh so sometimes it's like yay i want to do this cool thing i want to go out there and like conquer this but also at the same time like i need money right <laughs> you kind of have to in a way that Victoria Woodhull did, you know? Yeah. And part of it was like, hey, I want to go out there and accomplish these things. And part of it was like, I have to accomplish these things or I die. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I end up destitute on the street, and that's not fun. So I think that's interesting as well to kind of like look at their motives. Some of it was because they wanted to. Some of it was out of necessity. Yeah. And of course, Louisa May Alcott goes on to write a lot of really great children's novels she's kind of considered to be like the children's friend i think one magazine article kind of named her as because she wrote wrote a lot of children's books especially books for young girls but she hadn't really been a genre that had been tapped into yeah right um, so i think that was really cool that's interesting i hadn't really considered that you know when i think about like you know the books that we learn that you know a lot of famous men in history have have gone to and, and learned from yeah that's all it's a lot of adventurous boy centric male centric stuff and yet here's uh here's louisa may alcott where it's little women are going to be at the at the center of the story and and, and girls so that's really neat i also think it's interesting because i've I've always just known Little Women as a story, so I never really questioned it. Mm-hmm. There's not much of a plot besides them just going about their life. You know, it, it is interesting because it, it's like, like, and I've read Little Women. I love it. it. It kind of is this slice of life example that really works because I think you get so invested into the personalities of each of the characters and their and like the circumstances of their life. So. You know, I'm sure for girls reading at the time, they recognize so many things about their everyday life in the books. And then from our perspective, we get to learn about the more mundane, so to speak, everyday instances of life that are fascinating. It's probably one of the first instances of coming of age stories, right? I'm probably. not sure about... For girls, perhaps, for, you know? I think definitely for girls. Yeah. yeah. Hard to say for boys. I think there's several yeah. kind of like for boys, perhaps, or just... Not coming of age stories, but you see them come of age in the book. Yeah. But I think this is definitely just because it's part one is little women. And then that was that was it. And yeah. then they're like, Well, what happens to these little right, women? Exactly. And then she writes part two. Yeah. So I think out of demand they mm-hmm. became a coming of age story. Right. Because right. Originally it was just the end. Yeah. Girls, that's it. Um, and then with part two, it does become a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Um which I just, I like her. I, I think Louisa May Alcott's really cool. Um, and I think the story is so classic that it just endures time because you can see yourself in it because the characters are so relatable. Yes. It's a really character-driven story. Yeah, and they're, and they're characters that are also not like the super wealthy or, you know, the, the high society folks. Like, I, I think that's another way that she just connected to so many young girls of the time and today, for sure. And then I chose Margaret Mitchell because she's a Georgia girl. Oh, yes. Juliet Gordon-Lowe, she's also from Georgia, so oh, yeah. we, we got some Georgia girls represented in our podcast here. But I think Margaret Mitchell, is, she just fascinates me because she was kind of like the harm of this wealthy family, but it didn't seem like 
she embraced it all that uh-huh. much. Made some interesting decisions about husbands. That didn't exactly work out. Oh. At least the first time. Uh, and then married John Marsh, and then they had a nice life. But if you go and visit their house, which is probably in the History Center, it is this tiny apartment huh. which she kind of lovingly referred to as the dump. <laughs> she seemed that that reminds. I mean, she seemed to have such a good sense of humor. Oh yeah, and so and she witty. was so tiny, mm-hmm. and she also tried to break out of these like molds for stereotypes for women. Like she was never a mother. She wanted to work. She was a newspaper reporter. Yeah, she did these stunts like rappelling down like a building and stuff. <laughs> wow. Um, wore pants even in the twenties when that was still kind of like whoa. Yeah. Like ladies gonna wear pants, uh-huh. okay? Kind of didn't enjoy this high society that she was born into. She was supposed to do like this dance at debutante league, and it was very saucy. Ooh. So we have another rebel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she's like the definition of rebel. Yeah. Uh, and then she wrote about rebels. Uh, yeah. Rebels. Right. Like yes. <laughs> um, which I think is interesting. Her book also chronicles a very strong woman. Right. Uh, some people say that she kind of modeled it after herself. Some people will say like, oh no, it's this different person. Yeah. Scarlett Hare is probably one of my least favorite people in all of literature. Yeah. She's kind of terrible. Yeah. She's horrible. <laughs> She's literally the worst. And it's kind of fun to just read and watch her go like, oh my gosh, how are you going to ruin your life today, Scarlett? Yeah. But also somehow she survives. Right. Through right. all of it. And I think that the story of Gone with the Wind is really the story at the heart of it of survival and doing whatever you have to take to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret Mitchell said, you know, she wrote about characters that had gumption. And I'm like, yeah. that's a fun word. We gumption. should bring that back. Gumption. Gumption. Okay. Oh, yeah. Gumption. These ladies got gumption. All these ladies we're talking about got <laughs> yeah. gumption. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, I think Margaret Mitchell was just, she's a really interesting person. She had this like idea, like, I want to be famous when I'm young. And then she gets to be famous and this book gets published. And she didn't even want the book to get published. Oh, wow. She like wrote it and never had any idea. It's just a hobby. Wow. Yeah. She got bored because she got injured. And then she couldn't do her newspaper beat anymore. So she kind of, you know, was on crutches in this hot, terrible, tiny apartment. She sat at her typewriter after reading all the books and her husband essentially would bring her home books from the library and at one point he's like i think you've read every book in the library yeah if you want to read another one you gotta write your own yeah so she's like fine i will and then just goes on a typing spree yeah writes from the end to the beginning because wow. she writes it backwards gone with the wind whoa interesting um, and she puts all of her chapters in little manila folders and stuffs them in random apartments around <laughs> Like, like the, under her bed, in the closet, oh my in the gosh. pantry, under the couch cushions. Like, she just, like, starts stashing like a squirrel all uh-huh. of these vanilla envelopes. Until one day, this, you know, guy from New York comes down looking for Southern Riders. Yeah. And this is, like, the, you know, kind of, like, the, the end of the local flavor, regional flavor. Uh-huh. That is really interesting that people want, like, to write about regionalism. Mm-hmm. So, he comes down and starts asking around if anyone knows any writers. And... At some point, like, someone mentions her name, and she's like, oh, no, 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 like, I'm not me. <laughs> then one of her friends like, oh, yeah, Peggy, because her name's Margaret Mitchell, but they call yeah. her Peggy. And they're like, oh, yeah, Peggy, I, I knew you couldn't do it. Like, you're not serious enough <gasps> to write a book. And then she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Then he goes and gets all her middle envelopes, gives them to this guy. He has to buy another suitcase just to oh, take it back. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. So many papers. And then she telegrams him, and she's like, I changed my mind. I want it back. But at that point, he was already on the train reading wow. it. Wow. Uh, and decided that he wanted to publish it. So I think it's just interesting that she never even, like, really wanted Like, she wanted it, but yeah. also didn't. Yeah. Um, and then, like, what was she going to do once she got it? Right. Um, yeah. And she was basically like, my phone 
is like ringing off the hook. Like she just like literally took her receiver off the phone because she's like, I don't want it yeah. to ring anymore. And she like left town. She lost twenty pounds after. Oh my that, gosh. Like, like she was just so yeah. She could eat. Wow. Um, and just didn't know what to do with this like overnight celebrity. That yeah. She which I just think is, like, a very relatable thing that we mm-hmm. don't think about, like, these famous people. Like, what did the fame do to them? Right, because yeah. some of them were born into it, and then some of them were just kind of like, oh, it's happening now. Right, what yeah. What do I do? Um, yeah. So I think she's really relatable in that way of just, like, what what is this thing that I've gotten myself into? And to have something that is so popular to yeah. that you basically it sounds like just like a like you said she was bored and she had a passion project she got fixated on the subject and wrote this novel that then becomes like one of the most gigantic movie productions yeah. of its era too you know i mean that's so much to take on and so surprising i wonder if um did she after gone with the wind i mean does she still remain this like super famous figure or does does she kind of get to relax a little bit later in life i think she kind of wants to go into mystery mm. um even when she went out she would never say like oh i'm margaret mitchell she would just say if she's trying to like be on the down low she's like i'm mrs john march oh. because people don't know yeah. what she looks like she's an author oh. they know the name that's a good point that's a good point so, yeah i'm margaret you know Mick mitchell she never said that yeah uh, and one of the reasons she used her maiden name for publication and then she used her married name just in everyday life to kind of separate those two yeah so she doesn't get to enjoy her life all that much because she gets hit by a driver when crossing the street oh my gosh i don't remember learning that whoa yeah how how, when is this in her life oh yeah it's only like 10 uh, well 20 15 to 20 years after Um, she's Injured, she survives, but she's injured. Oh, no. She dies that yeah. way? I had no idea that was the way she died. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And wow. It, so her and her husband had just watched a movie. They're crossing oh East Street Street. A taxi driver just is, like, coming down the road. Um, and, you know, you're supposed to... Right, this is a PSA. <laughs> if you are in the middle of a road and there is a car coming towards you, the car will swerve, hopefully. <laughs> so don't run. Right. So she darts at the last oh, minute and no. she darts in front of the mm. car. So it swerves and misses her wow. husband but hits her. Oh my She's gosh. in a coma for several days and then ends up dying. Oh, that's so tragic and bizarre, yeah. you yeah. know? I mean, and she was only in her 40s, you mm-hmm. said? Wow. She wasn't that old. Yeah. Oh, that's really tragic. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. So she kind of... You know, after the publication of the book, after the production of the movie, she kind of goes away. She mm-hmm. does a lot of charity work mm. um, during throughout the Great Depression and into World War II. And what I think one of the most interesting charity works that she kept very much on the down low that mm-hmm. we didn't really even realize until far after her death is that she actually gave a lot of money to Morehouse College. Oh, really? A historically black college yeah. uh, in Atlanta for black men to become physicians to become doctors wow. and it's estimated that she helped about 70 to 80 men become doctors that's amazing um, wow so i think it's really interesting because gone with the wind is very heavily you know critiqued for its portrayal of its african-american and yeah. black characters so she was kind of confused by the backlash that she got from black press even at the time of this publication interesting yeah because she's like what did what did i do and uh-huh. like, well she just was kind of naive to the what she was portraying these people as was not actual people, but rather caricatures right. that were kind of based more on minstrelsy that she uh-huh. probably would have just grown up with. Right, yeah. Um, so she was kind of confused. And it's just very interesting, again, that complexity of mm-hmm. her and her race relationship. Yeah. Was, you know, she has this book, which is, you know, very racist right. in parts. 
in its portrayal, and then also wants to help and encourage these men become doctors. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, is a very, one of the interesting complexities of her legacy. And I think it also just speaks to, you know, her, what were her intentions at the time? And then, like you said, what of her life experiences led her to believe about, you know, black people of the time and just that sort of like, kind of ignorance when she's writing you know um but it's really interesting that she at least seemed to be specifically interested in you know devoting money to that cause yeah i think one of my favorite things i learned from going to the margaret mitchell house is that any money she makes today goes to the archdiocese of atlanta Oh, really? Okay, so, so uh, she was... You know, uh, the royalties? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, the, do you know much about her religious life? I mean, was she... She's Catholic. Ca- devout Very Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and it's interesting because the characters in Gone with the Wind are also very Catholic. Okay, right, right. At a time where it's not popular to be Catholic, uh-huh. even in the 1930s, it's not incredibly popular to be Catholic. Mm, mm-hmm. The clan also doesn't like Catholics. Mm-hmm. And when I say clan, I mean Ku Klux Klan. Right. So it's, you know, they're, in, in a sense, persecuted yeah. uh, in the, within the South. So it's, it's very interesting because you don't see a lot of portrayal of Catholicism in the mid-1800s and Georgia, right. The South. Yeah, and here it is in one of the most famous books yeah. about, you know, like life during the after the Civil War. So. I can't imagine how much money the Archdiocese gets every year yeah, from right. royalties <laughs> from her book. All right, we just have to write a really great <laughs> novel, and then we can support the History Center. Okay, we're on it. <laughs> no, that's that's fascinating about Margaret Mitchell. Yeah, any other questions about her before we move or on to any our... of the other ones? I kind of just kept talking. <laughs> yeah, I think we can move on to our, our Civil War ladies yes, at this time. So, yeah, uh, Claire Barton was my Civil War lady. So these are kind of like my topics that I like to research the, the most. Yeah. Monarchy writers in the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Claire Barton, I think it's interesting because you were talking about, about the White Cross, and Claire Barton is most well-known for establishing the Red Cross yeah. in America. And I think what's most interesting about her attempt to establish the Red Cross is, you know, after she is a nurse during Civil War, she works herself essentially to exhaustion mm-hmm. to the point where she is just so exhausted her doctors prescribe her a European vacation. Whoa. And I keep <laughs> wanting to figure out how to get this prescription. Yes, right? <laughs> Let's bring that back. It. Yes. Uh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But yes, they, they so they're like, no, no, you've worked too hard when yes. all of these soldiers go yeah. off to Europe. Oh, good for Clara Barton. I'm sure she definitely deserved it, a little vacation in Europe. Yeah. So she goes off and she's in Switzerland and she sees this thing called the Red Cross, which Mm. very much looks like the flag of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And essentially the Red Cross that we have today is just like a reversal of this flag of Switzerland. It's, you know, red field, white cross. Now, is it because, like, does Switzerland's neutrality have to do with any of that? I don't even know when that happened. Like, what, what, why does that inspire her? Oh, because they have their own version of it. Oh, so they of have the an Red organization, Cross. Like, Got it. Called the Red Cross. I see. That's there to give aid to people and, again, to be neutral. So they aren't really helping either of the armies, they're helping civilians who are affected. I see. It. So she sees this organization in Switzerland and mm-hmm. is inspired to become a part of it. Yeah. Okay. And so she tries to bring it back to America. She yeah. wants to start one in America. So she gets a comment. And she's like, hey, we just had this terrible war. Wouldn't it be great in case something like that happened again that we have this organization that is there to help the civilians who are affected by it? Yeah. And Congress said no. 
Why? We will never have a war again. <laughs> we just had such a terrible war. That's not going to happen. Wait, so we when, all what, learned our lesson. Was, we talk, when you say terrible war, are we talking about World War... No, it was a civil war. Civil war. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're not going to have any of those. We're not going to have any of those. No, no, no. Of course not. Yeah. But we don't need to invest in I that. see. I see. So then Clara's like, okay. <laughs> well, what if... We do this for people who are affected by natural disasters. Okay. We can't control those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those happen just as, you know, as acts of God. Yeah. They just happen. So they're like, oh, well, you know, we can't control tornadoes. So, yes, mm-hmm. we'll do That's the very Cross smart. That's very smart. Yeah. For natural disasters. So that's why you see a lot of Red Cross going in to when there are natural disasters. Yeah. They're, they're there to help and provide relief to people. So. That's probably what Clara Barton is most well known for, but she was also a Civil War nurse. I think it's very interesting because she was not friends with Dorothea Dix, who was in charge of the nursing corps. Yeah. Uh, so she kind of set off on her own and essentially created her own little group that gathered up supplies and brought supplies and helped essentially just where she felt like she was needed. And that's just like her unofficial volunteer group of nurses. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. So another another lady with a lot of drive and gumption, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. And you had another nurse you wanted oh, to... I did. So she's a nurse, but she's not a Civil War nurse, but Florence Nightingale. Ah, yes. Yeah. The lady with the lamp who really brought to life these radical ideas that in wards, we should make sure the patients have clean living conditions. Uh-huh. We should make sure they have nutritional food to eat. Uh-huh. And then also maybe, maybe we should let them have fresh air and sunshine. Ooh. You know, like, open those windows. Let's not hang like draperies everywhere. Let's have let let them have some fresh air and sunshine. And you know what? She revolutionized medicine. That's she fascinating. Yeah. Had so much success in these wards that everyone's like, oh my gosh, maybe we should do what she's doing. Yeah. Wow. And it's not like she had like a lot of experience, like in quote unquote nursing school or mm-hmm. anything, because it didn't really exist. She yeah. was the one who started like the first nursing school in England. Wow. Um, in the 1860s and wrote the book on nursing and like really started to train nurses as a profession rather than just like, hey, everyday ladies are supposed to be their quote unquote like family nurse. Right. If you are in charge of taking care of your family in that capacity. But then she really standardized it and made it to where, you know, you can care for other people. And where did she get those initial, did she witness other like physicians or did she, or were these just her own trial and error observations and experiments? I mean, how did she get her methodology? That's a very good question. And I'm not completely sure. I I don't have any evidence for it being from somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. I would assume it is she came up with it. Yeah. And of course, like you said, they're like to us, they're very like the most basic. Yeah. Of healthy environment conditions. So, yeah, I, I, I could easily she see it. was like, well, when I'm taking care of other people, this is what I do when it works. So, let's right, right here. Right. And it was just the matter of like actually standardizing it, like you said, to just make that the default. Yeah. Um, that's pretty. Thank you, Florence Nightingale. Yeah. And Clara Barton. These are two nurses that we can thank for sort of really establishing nursing in a more like official capacity. Am I right in believing that, like, prior to the Civil War, women weren't typically nurses? Could you tell us about sort of how these two women impact the field of nursing? Because now we kind of think about it as a woman-dominated field. Yeah. Uh, so Florence Nightingale really kind of smashes the glass ceiling of women being in healthcare, especially in Britain, because she was a nurse in the Crimea War, which was Britain in Crimea, located in, well, 
best way to say Ukraine, but Russia kind of took that over. But anyway, we'll say it's still Ukraine. Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there she proved that her theories were good. She then went back to England, started her own nursing school to train other people mm-hmm. so that they can be in these roles as nurses in hospitals and, these, and essentially creating this, this budding healthcare field because a lot of times, essentially before like the 1850s, 1860s, we don't see like hospitals, like they exist, but they're more like poor houses where people go to receive at least some semblance of care. I see, um, yeah. Because they just have no one else to take care of. It's them. not like state of the art at the time, you know. Yeah, yeah facilities. Uh, yeah, you're going to be treated in your home uh-huh. if you are wealthy enough or privileged enough to have like a doctor come to your house, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially anybody that has a, a decent or even just a fair amount of money. Yeah, it's going to be like the standard practice. Mm-hmm. So hospitals are really only for like the poor. They're seen as more charitable organizations than. A viable option for treatment. Right. Um, no, that's yeah. not going to be like a lot of people's first choice when they get sick. So Florence Nightingale kind of standardized that and helps with that budding healthcare movement. Clara Barton and the, just the Civil War in general kind of creates this massive, you know, movement of humanity within the United States. People are not near their homes when they get sick, so it's like, well, where do we put them? Right. And then also with this new germ theory that's coming out, where they're like, hey, maybe we should make sure we have clean environments. Mm-hmm. And maybe your house isn't the best place, like, to perform surgery. Right. You should do that in a place that we can make sure it's more clean. Yeah. Uh, that you have, like, big hospitals and treatment centers mm-hmm. really start to develop. So there's a whole mix of things that lead to this establishment of hospitals that are, you know, more state-of-the-art places yeah. and not just, like, last resort places. Right. That you can go and, like, these sanatoriums, these treatment centers that you can go and have these rest cures mm-hmm. and, like, all of these nice kind of healthy vacation. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the medical spas, yeah. in a sense, yeah. <laughs> uh, that you can go to in the later 1800s yeah. that get very popular. And just, you know, having, like, the actual art of surgery be perfected, mm-hmm. more or less. With the help of sedatives that, you know, make it to where that is a viable treatment option. Right, that yeah. Yeah, well, we can do surgery. That's yeah. the thing that actually works and people, you know, don't hate because they have to be awake through it. So right. they'd rather die than uh, have yeah. surgery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that that was a thing in the early 1800s. But by the end of the 1800s, they figured out that it's it works. Um, so there's more opportunity for surgeries because they're, uh, they're much more appealing. Yes. So, you know, you're going to have to have the facility for those things. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like, you know, starting with Florence Nightingale and... Clara Barton and, and Dorothea Dix, like, give her a shout out. You know, all these women are sort of, it's sort of leading to the development of these larger hospitals. Mm-hmm. Doctors are probably going to still be more, you know, men most of the time, you know. Um, we don't see a lot of women become doctors even until like the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Because nursing, while these women are really trying to push for women to become mm-hmm. nurses, it's still not considered good. Like it's not considered... Their domain, yes, so to it's, speak. It's not yeah. like women shouldn't be on the field. Yes, mm-hmm. it's, it's the idea that women should still stay at home. Uh-huh. And that's still their primary thing. So what are you doing outside mm-hmm. of It's just mm-hmm. not acceptable. Yeah. It's, it's not still an accepted practice. No, I would it's imagine. really after World War One. Yeah, I was, yeah. have so many men who are no longer with us uh-huh. on this earth yeah. that women have really had to step into roles that are outside of the home. And that's when, right after World War One, you see a lot of women very acceptedly and these fields get dominated by women and that's nurses 
nursing, teachers, and secretaries. Yeah, and yeah. You really see those fields get dominated by women is after World War One. And it's also an interesting connection because Girl Scouts starts in 1912, you know, and then during World War One is really where they have this huge boom. And they're working with the American Red Cross to learn nursing skills and basic first aid and rolling bandages and making care packages for soldiers and everything. So a good, good combination there, too, of just like this when there's a vacuum of men, you know, the women come in and really prove themselves to be uh, far more capable than society had perhaps thought of them. So, yeah, tons of examples of that through the ladies we've mentioned today. I'm curious to know what our listeners uh, have in mind as far as any historical ladies that they really admire or just find fascinating in general. So do let us know uh, if there's anyone that you have in mind that if you were a guest on, on today's episode that you would have talked about. But yeah, I say this has been a very fun conversation and that I hope it sparks some interest in all of these women that we've talked about today. And uh, and yeah, go ladies in history. I hope that, uh, I think that all of us have made our small, our small little impact on history being here at the History Center. And um, we're all strong too. That's right. We got gumption. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a new tagline. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and we will see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Bye! Bye! Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.